And welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Episode 24, we are talking crisis communications today on everybody's mind, and rightfully so. We are thrilled to have a special guest, an expert in crisis communications, Rick Kaufman, who is the Executive Director of Community Relations and Emergency Management at Bloomington Public Schools in Minnesota. Rick, great to catch up with you and have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Ryan, and thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. This is really on everyone's mind in education throughout the entire country and throughout the world um, as we see, unfortunately, way too many crises unfolding on school campuses and in our communities. Um, I know you're doing a crisis communication and school safety webinar series that you just wrapped up with Peach Jar. I uh, got to sit in on one of those. It was fantastic. Just give us a brief kind of synopsis of what you talked about in that series. It's been great. I, I really appreciate Peach Jar reaching out and, uh, and recruiting me to do a monthly webinar and blog that uh, really focuses on crisis communication and sort of the tentacles to that. So we wanted to not uh, um, try to come up with uh, a, the, a, a topic each month, but really take crisis communications and focus on that. And, and that uh, goes from you know, crisis communication planning to uh, crisis communication using social media and how to survive a social media fire and the communication elements that are part of that. Um, you know, t t today wrapped up uh, the, the, mo the monthly webinar with uh, the crisis communication goal of prevent harm to stakeholders. And what I love about this is that it gives us a chance to get uh, go in deeper to uh, just talking about crisis communication plan, which is what we focused on uh, last fall when we kicked this off. But uh, going in deeper as to what are the beyond the elements, what are the most important pieces, but then kind of peeling back those layers and, and let's talk about crisis communication using social media and then what happens when you have a social media issue and then let's go do a little bit deeper and, and who would have ever thought that stakeholders, which school communications and uh, professionals and actually communication professionals in general understand the value of stakeholders to help them in, in, a, in their everyday process of communication. Um, but what does that look like when your organization is in crisis and the value that stakeholders have? So that's been, a, for me, just a, a, a great, fun, and yet uh, informational educational process to help other professionals in the field understand the values of, of communication and why I preach all the time that uh, crisis communication is the foundation of any crisis planning, implementation, management, and recovery effort. It really touches every aspect of of a, of a crisis and an incident, and lack of it um, creates a tremendous amount of problems for organizations and from the reputation to careers in some respects. Absolutely. Very well said, Rick. And if you want to catch up with some of those resources that Rick shared in that series, you can go to schoolsafetyseries.com, and there's some nice resources that I'm looking at now that is available to others. Uh, Rick, before you and I jump into it a little bit deeper, just give us a little bit about your background. You have a unique perspective and a lot of really good experience that relates to crisis communications. Yeah, so I've spent 28 years in working in public schools and uh, mainly in communications and emergency management and 33 years in emergency management. Um, 
uh, about 30 some years ago, 30 plus years ago, um, working, uh, I was going to school as a paramedic. I was a certified emergency medical technician and uh, just continued that schooling and working for an ambulance service in central Wisconsin and learned how to respond very quickly. And then when I had an opportunity to take my communications and public relations skills to education, which was my second love, um, it just seemed natural to take those two passions and focus and, and really uh, turn it into something that I would would hope would be beneficial to schools. Unfortunately, in the course of that, I was uh, found myself at uh, to be on the front lines of the Columbine tragedy on April 20th, 1999, and so for the better part of 20 years, have been working to improve school safety and security, whether it's on the front end, the mitigation intervention, or the planning or the response and the recovery efforts. And along the course of that, I have uh, worked with, uh, consulted with schools, you know, uh, New York City schools after 9-11 and the New York uh, Education Commission and some of the other high-profile school shooting incidents like Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, Parkland, Florida, most recent, San Bernardino City Unified um, from a couple years ago. And, and, you know, there's a number of, uh, you know, school districts that have certainly dealt with less high-profile and mass mass tragedy incidents that uh, have been as equally uh, beneficial in terms of preparing them for the inevitable type of crisis. So I I find tremendous value and uh, comfort in knowing that um, my work is is helping schools um, to to be better prepared and and to respond in the unfortunate situation that they uh, encounter any kind of incident or, or emergency that um, puts people back on their heels and requires them to be um, uh, more open and transparent in communicating with their with their stakeholders, their parents and families and, and community. We're looking forward to your insights for sure. You do have a wealth of experience and knowledge on this topic. Just to let our other listeners know, we do have a few other podcasts in this series on my podcast site through iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify where we do talk about crisis communications Specifically, episode 12, we talk about school threats, crisis communications, and media relations with Christine Peck. Episode 3, I talk about how to communicate missing students in your school district. And there is another podcast episode in there that is a session recording from a CalSPR conference talking about crisis communications and dealing with the wildfires. So this is a topic of interest for you, and I bet most of you are listening because it is several other podcast episodes um, on this podcast about crisis communications. So Rick, one thing that you talked about that I know we're all dealing with is social media has brought a whole new level to crisis communication the past five, 10 years, and it's growing fast, it's not going away. Most of us are embracing it, but it does bring in that dynamic of trust and information and it happens so fast, it's hard to keep up with you know, getting accurate information out and then putting out the false information that is circulating on social media. I know part of your series with Peach Jar was addressing social media during a crisis. What are some of your insights and tips as people are going through one of these major crises, the social media aspect and what they need to know? Well, I think first and foremost, Ryan, and and I'm sure you probably touched on this in the previous podcast on crisis communications, you've got to have a plan. You know, we are very good at developing communication plans, and that's part of the 
the broad construct of the work um, that we do, and I think with social media and with um, emergencies, we've been forced to sort of tailor those communication plans. They used to be add-ons, and I think the reality is they can't be add-ons. They need to be extensions of communications plans. So it's really, it's not reinventing the wheel. In fact, you use the same kinds of uh, processes, but you're developing strategies and tactics that are driven largely by the incident and then when we get into social media um, by the fact that social media just creates a flow of information that is far greater in velocity and volatility than most organizations you know previously experienced or even had planned for so I think the big thing is having a plan in place and knowing the the value that that plan has in terms of who you're communicating to how you're communicating to when and uh, and where, and then the speed. You know, the uh, being being first is uh, is not necessarily the most important thing, but you don't want to be last either because it is really important to set the stage. And this is when I tell um, in these webinars, or as we're focusing on on social media or responsiveness in general, is that we understand that the lack of information that typically occurs when you have a crisis and the short decision time that uh, people expect to have information creates a lot of uncertainty. And when that occurs, um, you, your stakeholders really, um, and I'm, when I say stakeholders, the broad you know, parents and, and community members and family and media, they're going to seek information because they want to kind of gain a sense of control over the situation. For them, it's restoring personal balance. We're all impacted by a crisis. The closer we are, the more impactful it is. But even 1,000 miles away, these high-profile incidents were impacted by them. So I think it's really important to have a plan, and what does that plan look like from, that, from the standpoint of decision-making to flow to uh, messaging to mediums and uh, making sure you're, you're uh, checking all the boxes of those stakeholders that need that information. The plan is definitely key, and I think that's a great place to start because even when you do have this ironed-out plan, you go over it with your leadership and your school sites. We all know that there are going to be audibles, that you cannot predict what it's going to be, your individual crisis, but at least you have some kind of template, some kind of process checklist to go through. Um, one question that you made me think of, Rick, and I know this is a situation that people face as they're dealing with something, is how often to inform, put out a statement, hold a press conference. You talked about the control factor, people wanting the information. That's a question I get asked a lot is how often to put out information even if there is no new information, but to just let them know, we know there's no new information, here's the next update, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that communication flow as far as frequency of putting out information, whether there is any or not? Well, I think you have to, first of all, you have to sort of take a step or two back and what is the, what is your practice? What is your protocol? What have you established as a school system or an organization in terms of communicating? If you're one of those that, um, you know, you're first to, you're first to send something out and, and you're, you're Johnny on the spot without all the information, um, you may run the risk of creating that expectation that you can't fulfill in the future. So it's really important to establish what is your protocol. And so, um, you know, 
I look at it from the standpoint as the, the purpose of of any communication is, is to get the right information to the right people at the right time so the right decisions can be made. But that takes a formal process. So I, you know, oftentimes people, I think it's a, Ryan, the number one question I get more than anything else is, can you send me your crisis communications plan or your communications plan? And my response used to be, yeah, sure. We were all about networking and sharing. But then it became to the point where I saw people were taking those plans just simply, you know, putting their school district logo and, and name on it. And I felt guilty that I was doing a disservice to, to them because they were not taking the time and the due diligence to create a plan that is unique and responsive to that community. It's okay to take the elements, and that's really what led to my uh, blog and webinar in November where we talked about what are those specific steps to, to design that. So then you get to your question is, is well, how, how quickly do I respond and then how frequently do I need to respond? That's really, again, it's driven by your community and the expectation that you have set forth. Now, it, I, I believe it's really important that you are sharing information in a very timely fashion and oftentimes it's very little information, but at least what you're doing is you're providing um, some insights as to what's happening and what you as an organization are doing to uh, respond to that. So it's as simple as uh, uh, who, what, where, when, never the why, uh, your priorities and action steps, and then a focus on the victims and victims' families. And, I, and that's, that's an always, that's an underscored boldface. Victims, in my definition, are anyone that's impacted by that tragedy or by that incident, for that matter. It doesn't have to be the worst-case scenario. Now, frequency uh, in terms of your messaging is important because there's an expectation that people want to know the progress. It's um, very difficult, though, when you know that law enforcement, this is not a negative, by the way, they work at a snail's pace because part of that is they have a big responsibility to uh, investigate and, and to get it right. And so sometimes that information is not readily available. So. I believe strongly in transparency. Provide that information. Um, let them know where you are and what's happening, and that um, you know you'll come back with more information. I think the the caution I would throw out, though, is that you may have to set limits to the point that says this is all the information we have, and we'll get back to you tomorrow. I remember during the, uh, the immediate days after the Columbine tragedy. The Sheriff's Department was the lead agency, and they had a spokesperson, a public information officer, who was a great friend of mine. He was an absolute consummate professional. But he was um, uh, directed to provide what I would call ongoing press conferences throughout the day. If I were to have done that with my team, we would have burned ourselves out in the first 24, 48 hours. And so what we did is we limited it to two a day so that we could prepare um, we could set the standard, if you will, so that expectation, because back then we didn't have social media. But, it, uh, but what we did by that is we provided information um, in, in the morning to beat the news, new, the new news, and then late afternoon to beat the 4 or 5 o'clock news. Um, and then we would come back the next day unless we had breaking, breaking news, which typically wasn't the case. Now tr fast forward that 10, 15 years, and what we've learned is, is that you've got to set the standard um, in your organization. So on the one hand, you'll hear me say, don't cede control to others to be your voice, to be the ones that are sharing the information, but become the source of what's happening with 
an efficiency and an effectiveness. And equally important is what I talked about today is creating those relationships with stakeholders who become some of your greatest ambassadors to share information, correct information, and be your cheerleader or what I call third-party endorsers if someone's out there kind of taking pot shots at you. I really like your point, well, all those, but on the one size did not fit all for crisis communications. We had an issue, Rick, a few months ago at one of our schools, nothing major, but you know, a mid-level circumstance, we'll call it, and it was one of those things where how much do we send out, how soon do we send it out, and to your point, we defaulted to the principal, and I said, you know, what kind of is your expect, what are your parents, your community's expectations, and we let him take the lead on that because his school is not the same as, you know, another elementary, middle, or another high school, even within our own district. So we defaulted to him as far as, and he said, you know, look, in this normal situation, I wouldn't be putting this much out. Um, so we kind of defaulted to his past practice and kind of what his parents are expecting from him. So I like your point about don't just copy, paste, and print from another district's crisis communication plan and think you have a solid plan in place because every little environment, every little community is different and there has been past practice and expectations already set. So when you do skew too far from those, those that can be an issue um, within itself. Yeah, and the, you know, you, to add on to that point too, Ryan, is, is that, you know, there's a lot of one-person communications professional departments, um, one or two people, and then a question is often, well, how do I manage all of this as a one-person department? And my response is, is that you can't. You can't, hope, you can't expect to, and no one should expect that you can do that, but there are things that you can leverage that you can, uh, before you ever get into the situation where you're dealing with an incident, that you have created a network of people, your, um, uh, uh, again, these stakeholders, these, these sort of ambassadors. Because what we know, and this is based on research, that if crisis information that came from the organization in a crisis to the stakeholders, that relationship you've developed, then stakeholders are less likely to go look for in additional information. In other words, they're kind of waiting for you to spoon feed them and they then in turn will reach out to their interpersonal networks and those networks are far greater than what you and I can do whether we're a one or two person shop or even a four person shop. So the uniqueness of what you were talking about is so important because no two districts and no two schools are alike. I often will counsel, I have a district of 17 school sites and I, uh, the question I always ask them if they call me with an incident is, I say, so what's the buzz? You know, because there, there, there's this sense of I gotta, I gotta do something, I gotta tell someone. I say, what's the buzz? If nobody's buzzing about it, um, why do you need to let the whole world know? Why do you need to let everybody in your school know? It's important to monitor, and does that buzz start to grow? Then sure, you want to get that out there. But there are some certain times incidents that it's just by their very nature you need to share that. So let me give you an example. So today we had a, had a student, unfortunately, ran out into the street against traffic and got hit. He's okay, um, but it looked worse than it actually occurred. Now, is that something that they will share across the, the, the school? That's up to the principal. What's his, when he calls and says advice, you know, what's your advice, Rick? So what's the buzz? I mean, I think the, to sh in, in something like that, 
it is really important that you let your community know that an incident occurred, but these are the safety things. This is what we encourage kids to do. So take it and use it as a learning, learning as an educational tool here as well. I think that's the natural fear too, and that's such a great question to ask initially as well. What's the buzz? The relationship with the stakeholders is key to knowing who your PTA folks are, who has influence in the community, and making a phone call to them. But if there is not much buzz, then you sending something may be the buzz. So that's the dilemma, right? Right. And then with the beauty of social media, which I mean, a lot of people want to kind of bad. Uh, uh, put that in a bad light. I think social media provides us very, very strong and, and uh, powerful communication tools. We just have to learn to harness it. So you're right. When you do that, now you've created an open forum for people to um, kind of take shots at you. And again, um, I think the value of social media is it, re- it reaches to a greater audience with incredible speed. So understand the social media in your community. And um, understanding it means you don't throw everything on there and open yourselves up. I can't, I, 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 there's numbers of people, and I don't want to give that up in case they're going to mention this <laughs> in the podcast. Is I've had people call and say, well, Rick, we've got this issue, and, and I need to respond on social media. My, my response is, why? Why do you want to create a forum for people to tell you you're, you're not smart and you're doing things all the wrong way? You know, focus that communication to the targeted audiences that will most benefit from it. Now, if it's a large-scale incident or it's creating a whole lot of headache for the leadership, then maybe you want to consider using that, uh, using a, 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 fo- a more focused or targeted approach. I think social media has become a catch-all for a lot of organizations that believe, because of its speed, um, that they should be getting information out there, and I just don't think that's the smartest thing to do. When many, I, I counseled schools, um, or I counseled in my, my webinar today, talking about when you're using social media, if your social media plan is to really highlight the great things your students and staff and organization is doing as a whole, why would you hijack it then when you have a minor incident or an incident that may be a bit embarrassing and use that as a platform. Now what you've done is you've taken all that goodwill and wiped it away with an incident, whether you handle it correctly or not, is going to be under the microscope and uh, those armchair quarterbacks are going to tell you all the things you did did wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things people can take away for, it's hard, that's the gray area, that's the science and art of having good communications people is knowing how much buzz there is and will us sending something create more buzz, but do I need to address it? And one of the things we use for an indicator, so people are probably sitting there, okay, so how do I know if it reaches a level of buzz? One of the things we did with the moderate incident a few months ago was how many phone calls are the schools getting about this? Yeah. So if, you know, so that's a question to ask your principal, your staff, if it's at a particular school, how many phone calls are you getting? Is it three? Is it 30? Is it 50? How many do you normally get? So that'll be a very good indicator as far as the buzz. Um, incoming phone calls to the district office, the school site, and then, like you said, it's so key, and that's, I think, really good communications folks have those relationships or they at least know who to go to to, hey, have you heard anything about this? Um, you know they're connected. You know they have big so- social circles and reaching out um, to them. Another thing for us is always the um, relationship with 
the police and the people that are kind of in those investigations, our school resource officers, and knowing them, having them on speed dial, and the communication before things happen, uh, worth thinking about sending this out, mentioning you guys in it, vice versa, and just so knowing who those people are, and if that PIO at the police station isn't there, who's the backup? Um, what's your advice as far as the relationship with local law enforcement? Well, again, I think it's, you have a relationship is first and foremost because you want to be able to talk with them and get inside baseball, if you will, about uh, about an incident and then talk about what it is that can be released or what are they releasing. Uh, law enforcement have uh, less restrictions than school districts when it comes to providing information. So in some respects, you want them to take the lead. And um, and uh, and then if it's especially if it's a criminal nature, um, that's really in their ballpark. Um, as a school district, if it involves the school or a school district, it's what are you doing from a school perspective um, to to make sure that it doesn't happen again or or you know sort of augment it. So have the conversation with law enforcement as to uh, what what the information they're going to be putting out. Um, and then the other thing is being real protective not to see total control that if you don't agree with that information or if that information is going to be a, um, kind of put you in a negative light or, or put you on, uh, on the spot, there have been times when I have asked law enforcement to, can you hold on that information until I can at least prepare our leadership and our school board or directors so that they're in the know, so they're not blindsided. And I mm -hmm. think that has some value too. So. Again, you go back to something you said, Ryan, which is each situation has its own unique properties and its response. Generally speaking, you follow your plan, but in some cases you need to call an audible and, um, and not do what you always do based on the situation. I know of incidents, Rick, where police was thinking about sending out a press release. They had good communication and contact with the PIO at a district. and they made the decision altogether that, oh, this wasn't necessary. We were just reacting on your reaction. So to have that communication and make sure um, everyone is on the same page beforehand is just so key. And then like you said, it also that second layer of allowing your own stakeholders to know what's happening before they read it on the local police Twitter or gets picked up um, is just so key. So. Um, I always default to you got to have those relationships with the police, know who they are, and be able to say, hey, this is what we're sending out. Do you have thoughts on it? Um, and give them that same courtesy uh, when you're doing it. You know, hey, we're mentioning you as part of this. We had this incident, as you know. We're mentioning you. Is this the right language? Is this the right jargon? Um, and then sometimes, we're like, oh, that's not really technically it. Um, so it just saves. Um, a lot of work on the back end of explaining things that are unnecessary if you have those conversations um, up front. One thing that I, I see a lot of agencies doing now, and we talk obviously talking about social media, is they are adding a person to their crisis communications team just to monitor social media. A lot of those positions are now paid positions because it's such a big deal. Um, but for school districts, that can't always be the case, but it's at least having somebody that can do that, a part of your team, a staff member, to put out some of those inaccuracies on social media. What are you seeing as far as best practices as 
you know, getting a handle on that different dynamic of also monitoring social media while you're trying to do 90 other things? Well, I, I, and yeah, I, I approach social media use in a crisis. I, I really look at it from, a, from four steps. And the first one is what you just said, monitor. We need to use our eyes and ears, um, must be tuned into conversations and posts. But that's, um, uh, you know, that's on a, in a crisis. I also believe it's important to monitor those community pages. You know, so if we just step out of the communication, crisis communications world for a second, monitoring those pages sometimes can identify put the potential brewing of an incident um, or you sort of get wind of uh, thing, how, how your community feels about you. But um, I also believe it's important that we don't legislate, we don't, um, make policy or we don't react to everything we see on social media. There's a perception, whether it's school board members or staff, that they'll view these community pages and they'll come in and go, oh my God, did you see all this chatter? And I'll, and I'll say, okay, let me look at it and I'll see, you know, five or six people with commenting 40, 40 times. So there's four, four, 60 comments, but it's only four or five people. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, and then you look and you see, uh, has it been shared or how many people really engaged? It's so minuscule. And yet we're, tr- we're jumping through hoops to try and satisfy an issue that four or five people are commenting on. And maybe nobody shared it, but the interactiveness is very limited. In a crisis, it's very important, though, the monitoring because that sort of allows you to see whether you're hitting the mark in terms of of, uh, communication. The second, so the second step for me is identify what's being said, who's saying it, and how often. This is where you really can identify the seriousness of the issue, which I believe truly drives the response. And then the influence or the authority of the initiator or the commenters. So if it's uh, parents or if it's a, a well-known person or maybe even one of your key stakeholders, you might, might want to pay a little bit more attention. So visibility, volume, velocity, those all provide insights into what we talked about in terms of the buzz. The third step then is consider, is there a need to respond? And when I talk about that is weigh the options to determine whether the you should or should not respond. And in a crisis, sometimes staying silent may be considered an admission of fault, so it's a really difficult line that you're walking. So what's the buzz and whether or not you should respond? Now, if you choose to respond, then I think you better have a process or a plan in place as to um, what's the structure of how you will respond. So. Um, there's a couple of our uh, colleagues, uh, in, I think in uh, Nebraska and Kansas and others, that have sort of modified what, I, what is called a guide for responding online. And that guide is really uh, tailored after the U.S. Uh, Air Force created how do you manage the trolls and the misinformation, and the bigger question is do you respond or don't respond? And um, that's on the schoolsafetyseries.com website, the copy of the, that guide. I think it's very helpful. It's the kind of yes-nos, and if it's, uh, if it's not something that is going to create any value for you, then, then why respond at all? But now let's say you get to the point that you need to respond. You need to be quick, you need to be honest, complete, transparent, and be prepared for some backlash. Um, and that's what happens when you're responding. Um, that you can expect that they're going to, there's going to be pushback. So, I, I guess the takeaway in terms of the response is, if it follows, if you follow a process, um, you certainly want to acknowledge it. Your whatever you're trying to get information on in a timely manner. 
um, details to employees first because they're your greatest ambassadors, and I want them talking about it long before I want them to be grabbing misinformed information. And then what is it you're doing to respond and to fix whatever happened or address the situation? It's an important important point you just made too, Rick, is keeping your own staff in the know and doing that first um, because they are one of your key stakeholders and can help with that misinformation so much. So if they're, re- if they're getting information from you or from an outside source about their own organization, that never sits well and it doesn't tend to lead to the ambassador role you want them to play. You want to give them the information first and foremost if you can, and then they will help you on social media naturally. The other thing about responding, it, it always is such a tough decision whether to respond or not. Sometimes if you wait, I've seen it where you'll actually have your own people, parents, and community responding, basically saying almost what you would say, clarifying facts, and then you don't have to get involved. And then it's sometimes even more of a legitimate source because it's not coming from some suit at the district office telling you this. It's coming from a fellow community member or parent. So I think holding off a little bit, if you can, sometimes you start to see other people you know, kind of taking your side and saying, no, 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 that's not right. This is actually what it is. Um, and sometimes here's a link, here's whatever. Um, so I think there is some value in that, but that's always the million dollar question, when to respond um, and how to do it. That's, and you know, that's really my nirvana, to be honest with you, I, I is I watch as these unfold and you're exactly right, the, your stakeholders, whether they're your parents or staff members, when they're the ones that are, you know, talking and sharing, you're absolutely right. It's not the official um, spokesperson's voice, but it's the official message if they're sharing that kind of information. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to our employees, you know, we want them to understand our district goals and, and the benefits um, that we, that who we are and what we are and what we're doing. And they, they didn't only help you achieve those goals, as you said, they they'll actually take it a step further. And from time to time, um, you know, if someone kind of starts to steer a different way, then it might be valuable for the school district to kind of jump in and, you know, cl- uh, clarify or correct some misinformation. And basically, I see that that's just kind of nudging people back to the the topic at hand. So let's not go down these rabbit holes, which the uh, Facebook and sometimes mm-hmm. Twitter can have a tendency to do. So we'll do a little nudging and, and a very just simple um, response to misinformation or correction uh, without trying to over pontificate in terms of trying to we know best and we know all the answers. It just basically is a nice nudge and gets people back on track and then they take over from there. And we've seen that time and time again. And, and I, I go back to what I was sharing today is that um, when it comes to your key stakeholders, you, when you develop those relationships and you nurture that relationship, you're creating social capital. And by and large, they're going to support you and they're going to be the voice that um, you can't possibly be in all, all corners of your community. So you start with your employees. Um, if, they're, if they're the first to know, um, that's great because they're sharing your key messages and their networks of friends and neighbors and media. Um, they're targeting what what they know because as an employee, everybody sees you as the person in the know. 
I don't care if you're the custodian or the bus driver or if you're a teacher. If you're an employee for that organization and there's something going on, they will. their friends and neighbors and relatives are going to call them for the inside scoop. And by gosh, if we haven't given them the information mm-hmm. to be able to respond to them, to tamp down then the rumors, um, then we are doing a disservice not only to our employees but to our organization. And in essence, I believe we're telling our employees, you are not valuable enough to us to be able to provide that information. That's what they want to do. So keep staff in the loop. I think they help shape perceptions and they reinforce our district messages. And and next to parents, there's nobody else that can do that better. Agreed 100%. And when responding, Rick, I I think you obviously, you get to points where you have to respond and put something out there. I don't want people to think that they need to measure that response by some of the, you're never going to be able to convince the irrational people, the trolls that are just going at you just to go at you. So don't worry about if they're still not satisfied. The rational people will see your response and read right through the irrational person that's still going off the hinge. So they'll see it. They'll see you're not responding and they will know, okay, I get it. So don't worry if that irrational person is still trying to spark it up. I think the comment is more for the other people that may be kind of monitoring it and seeing what's happening, and I think that will help them. The other kind of tip and technique I would tell people is kind of what we talked about, is sometimes the message does come better from a parent or somebody else in the community. Um, So if you're having a conversation with one of your stakeholders that you have a relationship with, and they're coming at it from your same perspective and saying, yeah, I can't believe this. And maybe ask them, would you be willing to go to the board meeting and share your perspective? I think that would help us from a parent perspective and it will carry more weight. So don't be able, don't be afraid, I think, to ask that question of the PTA parent or somebody that's community leader to say, hey, can you speak on our behalf um, and see what they say? Because that does carry a lot of weight um, as opposed to it's always the suit and tie, the district spokesperson or the principal saying this. Um, so don't be afraid to ask those, those stakeholders. Yeah, and you know, I, I'll go to your original point. You know, I, I have a rule of three. You never send a, th- a third reply when responding online because a third reply <laughs> yeah. is an argument. Yes. And you don't want to be an argument. And to speak to what you're saying is uh, we, those stakeholder groups that organizations have, whether they're parents or business folks or um, you know, a key communicators network. You know, if you're, again, if you go back to the relationship development and you're keeping them in the loop, you need to be praising them and thanking them for what they, do, kind of the unsung heroes that they are for you. But you're exactly right. And sometimes it gets to the point that we have our group, so, you know, the superintendent or I will be giving them brief updates and then we'll go, well, what can we do? We, we, we don't agree with this or what can we do to help out? And then, you know, the, the, the superintendent gets a sly smile and he winks at me when nobody's looking because we've, we've and I hate to say this, but we sort of baited them into asking what they can do because that's the door when it says, you know, we just need you to support us in the way that the way that you feel is most effective, whether it's with your, your networks or, you know, and sometimes it even goes so far as, well, can, can we come speak to the board? Well, well, sure, if you're inclined to do so. We never want to come across as saying, um, you know, you need to do this, this, and this. Because I think sometimes they right. come across as overhandless. But by gosh, if they're the ones that are asking for it, and here's some ways that they, uh, if we can fulfill them by, here's some ways that you can do that, boy, you've uh, you've done a pretty good management of, of your, your key communicators. Absolutely. So before we talk about your experience with Columbine and some of these other major 
school shootings and tragedies throughout the U.S. that you've been involved in and have just so many great insights from. I want to go through kind of a scenario, Rick, that I know many of us out there listening have gone through. Um, a colleague of ours just went through it a couple of weeks ago, and I was kind of talking with them and kind of counseling them through it. Um, so let's just kind of walk through it ourselves, and we'll uh, play some scenarios, if you will, because some crisis communications are a little more straightforward than others. Uh, but I feel like this one is a little bit, there's some gray area and a little bit tricky to navigate. So the scenario, Rick, a student is seriously injured, maybe even, you know, killed in a criminal act, but it's off of campus. So it's your student, but it's not on campus, not even during school hours. The media is involved. They kind of have word that it's your student. Um, they're asking you for confirmation and then it's very early on in the investigation. You still haven't got your bearings yet talking to police. Um, then the media is showing up at the school. We don't even know what just happened, but they're there. You're not ready to release anything from a district perspective. So one of the situations that occurred recently was um, in another district is, and this has happened with us as well, off campus, our student and the media wants confirmation that this is our student, can you confirm that? My response, Rick, is no, I cannot. I'm not law enforcement. That's their jurisdiction. If they're not ready to release it, the name for whatever reason, um, that's probably has something to do with the sensitivity to their investigation. They have a reason for it, their own timeline, their own procedures. But especially with FERPA, HIPAA, and all that, a school communications person or a school principal, a district, does not have the liability to confirm an identity of a student involved in a crime off of campus. Your thoughts on that? You're exactly right. And I think uh, the fact that it's off campus um, is puts really the focus on that's a law enforcement issue. And to be respectful, the family school district shouldn't be commenting until more information is known, particularly if, uh, if the family, all family members have not yet been notified by either the law enforcement or the, the coroner's, uh, coroner's office. So um, I think putting out information that, um, you know, sort of kind of put the media at bay is that um, we are just getting details of an incident that may have involved uh, one of our students, but at this time we don't have details. And um, we are, uh, you know, working with law enforcement to get those details. But until that time, there's not much information we can share at this time, and we certainly can't. Um, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say we can't confirm or anything. I would just simply say that we we can't provide information that we don't have at this time. And and um, now, if the sheriff's department has identified the individual um, by name and or age, and uh, people can put one on one together, you're hopefully the organization is going to know that school district is going to know that, mm -hmm. and then um, you can take the role of. Um, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, very um, uh, empathetic. Um, we want to be able to show that um, the empathy as a school system that we've lost one of our own, and that we're working to help our students and staff through this tragic time. That's what people are looking for. They don't need us to provide any gory details. They don't need us to provide, um, to you know, sort of the, to take on the role of an investigator or law enforcement. That's not our role or responsibility. And I would say this, it's important that um, the school district, if, if, if they're in the know, 
that they reach out to the family. There's oftentimes an incident, whether it's by violent act or an accident, that we learn about it, that we are reaching out to the family before anything is ever said because we want to first extend our condolences. But how can we help them as a family? Because they need to navigate lots of different things, including the child's uh, effects and or depending on the year uh, uh, that the child is in school, any number of issues. And, you know, behind the scenes, that's when you need to be, your school district needs to be going um, into your mass notification systems, into all those notification systems and turning that off to the family because what you want to do is now directly deal with the family of the, of the student that uh, was injured or killed and not be insensitive and in sending information that they would likely see. Yeah, and the tricky part for people dealing with this, especially if they haven't gone through it the first time, is the media is going to ask that question and they're just doing their job trying to get confirmation because they're not getting it from police yet, but they talk to the neighbors and they pretty much know it's that kid because everyone's talking about it. You know it's 90% that kid, but until the police say it, it's not the school's responsibility to release the identity of, of a student involved in a criminal act outside of school. Um, and then your second point is, is wonderful, and one I learned early on is default to the family. Because even in this scenario or another scenario, there's situations where putting information out on social media can help. Uh, in my podcast, when I talked about missing student, some parents will really appreciate, can you please share this on your social media? Can you please send an email blast to all our parents in our community? Um, and some will not, but how do you know that? Like you said, Rick, make the call to the family and say, hey, offer your support. We just learned about this. Is this true? Are you working with police? We're so sorry. Is there anything we can do? Um, and see the reaction and then offer them what things you can do. I can put this on our social media. We can send an email blast. We can work with law enforcement, put out their uh, press release. Um, always default to the family um, as far as what's putting out there. and then. In the case where somebody gets upset, well, why didn't we know about this? It's very easy to say the family didn't want this information out there. It's a personal tragedy, and they didn't want us publicly, you know, putting it out on our social media. And I think a rational person will understand that. So I always default to the family. So here's my other question, Rick, about getting back to that scenario. So it just happens. The media is showing up. They kind of know who the student is. The district's not ready to release a statement yet. But there's a reporter out there, again, doing their job um, and trying to get statements from staff. What would be your recommendation of a school site saying, oh man, we have three news trucks here, we're not sure what happened, we're pretty sure it's our student, um, do I say something, do I not say something? From a district support level, what would your recommendation be for that school site and how to deal with the media there and the district's not ready to say anything yet? Well, first and foremost, whatever information, limited as it may be, that the district has received about this particular incident is I'm going to want to uh, pull the, t the staff together, the leadership of that school and the staff, and have a conversation with them. This is the information that we know right now. Um, we're asking you to keep it out of respect for the family as well as the investigative purpose, the investigation. Um, to keep that close to the vest. Um, we're preparing you because we know that as a staff you're going to be, you're going to need to sort of put your game face on when this becomes public because kids, students are going to look to the adults. So part of this is 
that behind the scenes is really preparing our staff. Along with that then, and I'm often um, in those meetings and then I'm, I'm advised to provide, Rick, can you share um, what the district is going to do communication-wise or how do we handle the media? And I will typically go in and say, um, so it's really what you and I just talked about, that this is, a, this is a, a private matter with the family until such time as we have connected with them and they feel comfortable with sharing that information. And that information won't be shared until such time as law enforcement has confirmed and confirming is that the uh, coroner's office has declared that the individual has de is deceased and the family, all family members, pertinent family members are notified. So it, it requires all of us to, we're not responding. And in those kinds of situations, while I agree with you in our earlier conversation, we don't tell our staff they can be interviewed by the media or they can't be interviewed by media. But these are one of those times when I will uh, strongly um, advocate for we follow the district lead on this. Then um, it's our responsibility really to run interference and to go out and talk to the media um, and and share with them that look we're just getting details and so we're we don't have all of the information until such time as we have that information we really can't comment and we want to respect the family's wishes and we want to respect the investigative process I have not found media that has never been respectful of that response in the immediacy of an incident mm -hmm. and I think it's important like you said I think that conversation with staff is look I, if you want to go talk to the media absolutely that you're right I'm not telling you not to but here are is the information we have as a district here's why we're not saying anything right now we don't want to jeopardize the investigation we don't want to do this and here's our perspective again do what you want but I just and even if you do want to go I'll be there to support you if I can help you do whatever but giving them that information I think most people understand like okay if the district's not saying anything they're not telling us not to say anything, but at least they have that background knowledge and information as to this is why and make up your own mind, but here's our perspective on it. Yeah, and I, you know, there's, there's been times in where the superintendent kind of plays the heavy and will say that, you know, we, it is not our position to comment, so we won't be commenting into to, to staff. You know, and then we'll stage it as such as that, um, if staff is it's at a point in day when they, they're going to be leaving, you know, we'll, we'll stage to bring the media to a certain location so staff can, um, you know, leave without being hounded and do so in a way that um, they're not necessarily being seen by the media. So um, we've, we've sort of done that tactic as well. But, again, I think it goes back to, um, you know, as, a, as an employee, you represent not only yourself, you represent the school and the organization as a whole. And nobody, nobody wants to be in a position where they bring a negative light on themselves and on the school and on the organization. And no matter even if if you, if you happen to be angry or you're upset, it's just not it's just not good. Yeah. And your thought of a press conference at 2:45 at the district office just as school is getting out is not a bad idea at all to give the staff members some free room to get to their car and get out of there while the media is uh, at another location so everyone can kind of do their own jobs and concentrate on on everything. Uh, so Rick, you mentioned, we talked about it briefly, but want to get in a little bit deeper about your connection with Columbine, that 
one of the first big tragedies, school shooting tragedies, um, that really put school shootings on the map in 1999. You were the spokesperson for Columbine back then. What was that experience like? I'm sure there's a lot of lessons learned. Um, I don't even know where to start with this, but just your initial thoughts and what was your exact involvement with Columbine? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, uh, was the executive director for public engagement and communications for the district. Um, I uh, was one of the first ones on scene after the school shooting, and with my background in emergency management and as a, um, as I said, going to school as a paramedic, um, I really was uh, rendering triage and first aid to victims initially, and and then uh, eventually was. Uh, handed the mantle of responsibility to co-lead the crisis response team. So my team was focused on, my leadership and, and uh, team was focused on all of the media relations, strategic communications, the various different events that, uh, you know, were part of that, uh, whether it was the president or the vice president attending, um, it, as you know, was a seminal event. And so it got a lot of uh, round-the-clock coverage, and, and uh, it was a massive undertaking that, um, uh, we uh, did the best that we could with the focus of how do we heal and how to return to sense of normalcy. So a um, lot of lessons learned from it, certainly. Uh, we made mistakes, and that's how some of the lessons were learned. But had an incredible team and and uh, of professionals and support staff that, uh, you know, we were really focused on how do we heal as a community, how do we heal as a school district, and that um, we we could not let this tragedy define the school or define those incredible staff members and students and define um, the community and define the organization. And that was at the center of our work and our focus, and, and we never lost sight of that. And even though in the darkest days of, of the funerals and the memorial events um, and then the, the fingers of blame, we never lost focus of at the, on our students and our staff and the community even when the community, there were large groups of community members that were hurting so much, including the victims' families, that they needed someone to blame. They needed to be able to point that finger, and, and uh, we expected that. And, and uh, while I don't want to say we welcomed it, we understood that it, it was a necessity and it came with the whole healing process. So understanding the impact uh, was was vital into in, all of that, and I think... Um, uh, we weren't, nobody was ever prepared for it, um, but we did our best based on what I, I've termed, termed it cardiac assessment. What was making decisions and, and uh, focusing our community on what was best in the heart and mind? And if you follow your heart and mind, um, I, I believe that you're going to, uh, you're going to come out, going to come out okay. You're going to be scarred and it's never easy, but you're going to come out okay. Where was the biggest need, Rick? As soon as that happens, it's unfolding, and everyone realized what just happened. Where do you even begin with that? Where did you guys start? Well, part of it is was really to, um, you know, we we did a lot of work initially that was never seen in the light of day because it was such a, a large crime scene and large criminal event that really didn't shake out for at least 24 hours or so. That was the dominant piece of the media coverage and the focus. And so we knew that eventually that was going to shift to us about how it happened, why it happened, and what we were doing about it. 
so that sort of gave us the opportunity to start to be prepared. But in, in, as part of that, though, we were all in, impacted in a huge way in the, the incredible uh, pain and sadness that um, we were all feeling and dealing with. And so it was very important for all of us to um, work together as a team and comfort each other. And because we were all feeling it, the, we were all feeling that, and, and yet we also had a job to do. We had a responsibility. So in as much as it's very, very difficult to do, uh, we put our game face on every single day and we did what we needed to do and we cried on each other's shoulders at night. Um, but it was really about managing the school and and um, the needs of the students and staff about finishing the school year, not to let that define what that school year was going to be and not to de- ultimately that would define um, for years and years to come. And so looking back nearly 20 years later, uh, it's nice to be able to say, um, you know, that didn't define that community. It didn't define us as an organization. And, um, but gosh, we could have, we could have really all wallowed in that self, uh, pity and that, uh, that fear and anger. Um, but that wouldn't have gotten us anywhere. Rick, when you're dealing with so many different agencies from a school shooting of that magnitude, you have local police, sheriff, fire, FBI gets called in, you have all these different agencies. How do you coordinate the communication amongst just the agencies to get on the same page before you start putting out information, before you're about to hold a press conference? How do you coordinate and figure out the message, everyone's on the same page, who's in the room, and what were some of those conversations like on the onset of, let's get on the same page, how do we get on the same page? Well, it was a bit of a stumbling block initially, because uh, law enforcement, PIO, um, you know, they they were taking on the role of uh, sharing uh, district information, and and for that matter, we were trying to be investigators, and... and, um, not necessarily sharing information that was crucial investigation, but sort of surmising or or speculating. And after the first 48 hours, we did what my father used to do with myself and my two brothers, that we couldn't uh, seem to get along. He had a come to Jesus meeting with us, so we we had a come to Jesus meeting with our um, with the, with the responding agencies and and with FEMA's help to. Um, you know, sort of navigate that, we came to the understanding that, look, you guys are investigators, you do your job, we're the educators, we'll do our job, and uh, let's not step on each other's toes, and let's collaborate um, and coordinate where we have to, but, um, you you know, we're going to go down different paths, and that's okay, Um, but we always shared our information, but we didn't, we didn't, uh, from that day on, we didn't uh, cede our control, nor did we step on uh, too many toes, for that matter, and we didn't judge the any of the response of the other agencies in as much as they didn't do the same to us, because neither of us were going to be uh, sailing through this on um, clear waters and not have some hiccups along the way. And the worst thing we didn't want to happen is uh, these partners, these agencies that we were partnering with, to uh, kind of paint a negative light to the other agency. So even though some mistakes we made were pretty glaring, the mistakes that other agencies were making was pretty glaring, they did things that I would have never done, and I'm sure we probably did things that they would have never done. But we had a mutual respect and understanding. Um, And so we found time because we worked out of the same location. We really set up a command post 
uh, that we, the responding agencies, were all together. So there was a naturalness about sharing information, about that collaboration, but we didn't stop to get permission from them and they didn't get permission from us in terms of the response. Yeah, I think the difficult aspect of that, Rick, is there's so many media folks out there People, whether it's you as a school spokesperson, the PIO for the police or fire, they're trying to be helpful and get information to the media. And the media doesn't sometimes necessarily know whose jurisdiction is what. So at a press conference, you often see, oh, let me bring up the police chief for that question. But if there's all these reporters everywhere, there's different spokespersons for different agencies, they're trying to help and answer the question, the, you know, the police department, the sheriff may have just got, you know, what time are schools going to open question, and he's trying to be helpful, but it's not really his territory. So to your point of sticking to what you know, and it's okay to say, I don't know, that's a question for so-and-so, here's their contact, or please talk to them, or please talk to the police. And that goes back to our conversation earlier of, it's not the school district's job to confirm a criminal identity in a case, that's the police department. So I'm trying to help you, but that's who you need to default to. So I'd imagine that that's the tricky part. Um, even with us here, and I'm, I don't know how, if this is an issue for you guys, some people in the community don't know what jurisdiction the school district has versus the city, and sometimes we're confused as the same entity. Well, aren't you guys the same? No, that's the city council, that's the city, we're the school board and the school district. So it's that's where I think the issue is. Nobody's, like you said, trying to do anything intentionally, but the questions coming in, they're not for the appropriate person, but we're trying to help out and get information. And that's right. where it's okay as a spokesperson to say, that's a question for the city, that's their jurisdiction. Anything related to the school district or the schools, I'd be happy to answer that. Yeah, absolutely right. And then, then again, it, that way you don't uh, set each other up for to be, be criticized or have a critical, and it was, numerous times when we would be asked that and I knew where it was coming from and to paint the some some other agency in a negative light but um, you know uh, like I said we we, we we survived to the point that uh, today we've learned a lot and we've helped others and um, you know with that right I've got to go I've got another function to get to but I do appreciate the time and the opportunity to, to talk about things that I think will help other school districts I appreciate you uh, taking the lead on that Rick, I appreciate the time. This is probably the longest podcast I've ever done, but it's so interesting. We really appreciate your insights. You can catch up with Rick on Twitter, RJ Kaufman, and then a great follow on LinkedIn as well. Any other ways people can reach you, Rick, if they're interested in some consulting or just chatting and getting some resources? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is great to send me an email. I'm always willing to, to help people out and lots of questions and and uh, uh, whether emails or calls, but um, you know, you just get, keep fighting the good fight uh, as educators. And um, we got some tough times that we're all dealing with. But I, at the end of the day, I think if you feel like you've done the best that you can, then you got to go home because there is a balance that is really necessary in our our personal and and uh, professional lives. And I've learned that the hard way, but it's the most important thing I've learned and takeaway of the last 20 years. Rick, great job. You keep up doing what you're doing. I think it's great. You're advocating for public education, crisis communications, helping communities and schools. There is not any greater work than that. So thanks so much for the time. We will chat soon and really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Take care. Thanks, Rick.
Big thanks to Rick Kaufman for coming on. Just a fascinating individual with great expertise in the area of school and crisis communications. Really knows his stuff. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter as well, Ryan P. Ferran. Also have a blog with a lot of school communication issues and public relations involving schools. You can check out Ryan P. R. Ferran blogspot.com. Again, this podcast is available iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. You can subscribe. We have 20 plus issues on school communications, and there's several others on crisis communications, a big topic and important one. So appreciate everybody listening. If you have any questions for me, you can email me as well and uh, connect with me on Twitter. Be happy to chat with you further about this. And um, I was going to continue to ask Rick about, you know, people in with safety response and crisis communications if you look at columbine and how police respond and responded back then that's now a different protocol um and rick and i before the podcast we're talking about just like the police they have changed their protocols and responses to school shootings crisis communications has changed is changing and continues to evolve just like police tactics and dealing with this are always evolving so we need to stay on top of it so follow rick Um, and others in this area and keep on top of it because it's so important to keep our students and staff and our communities safe. So again, thanks for listening. This was an important podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and we will talk to everyone soon.